Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA Safe Pilot. Restrictions apply. Oh my God, you are really a, a creator of your own space. To this day, don't really know where I want to be. I wasn't like aspirational, I'm going to make my mark, I'm going to be the leader of the gang or something. I was more like the quiet one. I was very well behaved. I was, you know, non-confrontational. Age six, I started playing the piano because it was an amazing instrument and it made me feel happy somehow. I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine what it could be like to grow up in a communist country. I remember being four years old and my grandmother would always take me to the market and we would wait in line for some produce or bread. And you would wait for two, three hours. And by the end of those two, three hours, you might end up there and not getting anything because everything was gone and you'd walk home having spent four hours waiting. It is some sort of a past life. Like it's, it's you know, 20 years ago, that's, that's kind of where, where all of that sits. We've never gotten this much and such good press. So it's kind of like strange almost to be like, wait, what? Is this the power of nostalgia? Or in our own uh, analysis, we've become much more chill. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So, Lewis Oberlander, this is fascinating because we have sort of known each other over a period since about 1989, when I interviewed the Jeremy Days in the TV Tower, have I got that right? The TV Tower in Hamburg, when it used to revolve. Amazing, amazing. Yes. You, your memory is insane and it is true, yes. The and famous course, TV Tower. Mm -hmm. um, okay, uh, the reason that I wanted to interview you, I know people often interview Dirk when it comes to the Jeremy Days, but I wanted to interview you because I think your life is a fascinating journey of different choices 
along mm. the way that has always interested me. And I've always sort of followed you on Facebook and we've had contact over the years. Um, right. And I find your story really interesting. So I'm going to do the whole story and I want to go back. Um, you were born in Sofia in Bulgaria and mm. your mother came to Hamburg when you were five. What sort of life, I mean, I'm sure you've talked to your mother uh, about it at some point in, in your life. What sort of life did she have in Bulgaria and why did she make that choice? Um, <clears throat> wow, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine what it could be like to grow up in a communist country. Uh, very, I mean, we of course know that through media and everything, oh, Russia is bad. And you know, Bulgaria was part of the Eastern Bloc. And therefore you had, it had a lot of advantages in some way, but also a lot of disadvantages. And the disadvantages were a kind of like oppression, um, you know, a shortage of actual goods. I remember being four years old and my grandmother would always take me to the market and we would wait in line for some produce or bread. And you would wait for two, three hours. And by the end of those two, three hours, you might end up there and not getting anything because everything was gone and you'd walk home having spent four hours waiting. My grandmother was very smart. You know, she, know how, she knew how to handle a kid. And usually when that would happen, we would go to the, uh, to the what's that called? To the fairground around the corner. So I was like, all right, whatever, no bread, but you know, we're gonna go on a merry-go-round. So <clears throat> um, yeah, but I think, I think for my mother, it was the idea of <clears throat> what the what would the future look like for herself and for me as a kid, you know, growing up. And um, and then there's also that other element where simply she fell in love with my father, with my stepfather, you know, who was from Hamburg. And therefore, um, you know, they made that move. Um, and I arrived in Hamburg and it was a very, very strange time for me because I was, you know, I didn't speak any German in the beginning, of course. And, um, and the weather was just shit. I mean, that's, that's been sort of like a red thread. I know it's too banal almost, but um, the weather in Hamburg is a thing of its own. Um, but I was very lonely as a kid. I, I felt like I didn't belong. I think I was faced with some sort of, you know, uprooting of sorts. My grandmother who raised me for two years, uh, stayed in Sofia. Um, I missed her a lot. Yeah, so. Okay, I want to come to that in a second, but you, you mentioned there were disadvantages and advantages about living in a communist country. What, what were the advantages then? I think, you know, a lot of people from Eastern Germany probably have, you know, the former um, Eastern Germany, they have voiced that as well, that you kind of have been looked after in some way. So there's, you know, institutional, uh, you know, kindergartens, there's work, <laughs> you know, you know, you can't afford the luxury of capitalism. You can't get a new iWatch or, you know, or any of those devices, but the bare basics are kind of covered. 
I know, I mean, it's, this is probably a too long of a conversation, whether it's really all shiny and, and wonderful, but there has been a, some sort of nostalgia about people from the East going like, wow, man, the, the West is a rat race of sorts, and I'm not sure I'm cut out for that. And then they start harking back to the good old days and whatever times, you know. Um, I'd say, I'd say this, those are the events. I think... You know, I, I revisited Bulgaria. I went to Bulgaria. I keep going to Bulgaria up until it was like 12, 13 years old. And then uh, there was a long break and I revisited at the end of my 20s. Now I was very worried, you know, meeting my family, you know, coming from the West, that, that kid from the West. And I was expecting poverty and, you know, and, and awkwardness. And I realized that Bulgaria in particular was a very rich country. And by that, I mean, you didn't feel that former communist, you know, bleh, horribleness of sorts. It's a very a culturally rich country because when there is no money and people experience that, I guess, all over the world, when they go to poor countries, they envision, they see a, a, a lot of spirits, like high spirits of sorts, because there's music, there's love, there's family which are all values that we all know they are free. They don't cost anything. And people engage in that and, and you know, make that a thing in, in lieu of you know, items, things, stuff. How did your birth father react to you being taken to another country? I presume your birth father was alive and he stayed in Bulgaria. So yeah. what, was, what was the relationship with him uh, because of this? He is still alive and, um, you know, he remarried, got another kid, my half-sister. And, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I never really wondered and I actually never asked him. All I knew was that um, he was okay. He thought I was in good hands. He knew my stepfather was a very loving and wonderful man. Um, he respected my mom's choice and I think he just went on living his life it was very uh, I think unemotional and um, non-problematic also the way I look at it I, I know I know a lot of people you know who have grappled with you know divorced parents and you know not being connected with their parents I don't have a, a very close connection with my real father um, but on visiting him again at the end of my 20s, um, it's funny because I don't speak Bulgarian anymore. So, I mean, I understand it. I know the phonetics. I can read the Cyrillic alphabet and all of that, but I don't speak it fluently. So there was my half-sister who kind of had to translate from Spanish-English that we would sort of talk to Bulgarian. But, you know, you, you meet your parent and you just hug and there's warmth. And there was a wonderful scene at the dinner table at some point when we were all, you know, they, they serve little items. And, um, and then I grabbed the onions and I eat them like raw onions. And then he just said like, look, he's my son. He eats raw onions. <laughs> That's the sign of a man in Bulgaria. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> the, um... When you went to Hamburg, you mentioned that you were the other in a way. Um, and the outsider, I would sort of express it as well. How did that represent itself and how did that make you feel? Uh, well, 
I would say, I mean, the, the funny thing is like, how does it make you feel is, is a two-sided question because it's how did it make me feel in that moment? What, I, what do I remember from the actual feeling and how do I analyze it now? So that's, that's always kind of tricky to, to make that distinction. But I would say at that point, being the outsider, I had a really funny name, a strange name to a lot of Germans. It's Krasimir Bakalov, Krasimir. No one can pronounce that name in German. It's like, what the fuck? I don't know. This is like weird. So that was, you know, something number one that didn't pan out. <clears throat> and then the games that we, I would play in the courtyard with the other guys and the other kids were really strange. They were like grabbing each other's balls. That was a game. <laughs> and I was like, ah, this is weird. <laughs> You know, of course, of course, you know, amongst other things like playing soccer and stuff like that. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I think, I don't know, there was this sense of not belonging or not knowing. And it wasn't, I wasn't like aspirational. I'm going to make my mark. I'm going to be the leader of the gang or something. I was more like a quiet one. I was very well behaved. I was, you know, non-confrontational. I was a quiet kid, you know, and therefore, of course, you know, there was a clear escape. And the first escape was reading uh, language, you know, stuff like that. I learned German. I learned to read um, and I started going into books, books. And then age six, I started playing the piano because it was an amazing instrument and it made me feel happy somehow. What, what music did your parents and I obviously mean your stepfather in this, your mother and stepfather, what, what music did they listen to? And when did your taste start to diverge? Huh. Um, I remember long trips in the car to Bulgaria. We would travel for two to three days um, and they would pretty much play, you know, top 20 cassettes. The songs that I remember like distinctively were uh, David Bowie, the man who sold the world, that, I don't know, it was that guitar line and the harmonic movement from it to that one, it always made me feel some way. And then um, songs by Neil Diamond and, you know, just it was pretty much pretty much mainstream pop that we would listen to. They didn't have a distinctive, you know, oh, this is what we love. Um, I remember, though, that one of my first concerts that my parents, that my mom actually took me to, and that was my first concert, like, as a concert goer, uh, was the Rhythmics. And I thought it was super tacky because they didn't have the good stuff yet. They only had had Love is a Stranger. That was the first single, I think, or the, like the first major single they had. And I thought it was like it sat on the, on, the, on the brink of Schlager somehow, German Schlager. And I was like, oh, mom, do we really have to go? This is so awkward. Da, da, da. Little did I know how advanced my mom was <laughs> because, <clears throat> of course, Eurythmics turned out to be, you know, a major force in the 80s. And I did love, you know, a lot of their songs and I did absolutely adore Annie Lennox. Um, 
but my my own musical taste it pretty much start, started to diverge from my parents mainstream taste i think with prince um and um todd rundgren and of course a major force were the beach boys because i had a, a notebook a, a, a song sorry a, a sheet book that had pet sounds for piano and it was funny because I was playing classical music, Bach, Mozart, et cetera, et cetera. And I would play the Beach Boys and I realized there was a semblance of sorts in chord progression and melody creation. And my God, I mean, you know, the Beach Boys, I think ultimately opened up a huge universe for me and on, in many ways, one of them of course, the idea of the Californian dream, you know, or yeah, basically just sunshine, good times, uh, a, a life that is on the polar opposite of life in Hamburg, which I at that point did not like too much, right? And the other part, of course, was Brian Wilson's genius, who was, you know, that I remember listening to that song, and I was probably around 10 years old. Uh, I guess I just wasn't made for these times by the Beach Boys. It's a beautiful, slow song, very moody, very, you know, emotional. And I did not know what the words meant because I didn't speak English then. I knew exactly what he said. And, you know, later on, once I, of course, spoke English and I was like, oh, my God, I really guess I just wasn't made for these times. There's so many things that I'm not decor with. Uh, at 10 or 12 years old. And, you know, that's kind of been an ongoing thing with my life. We'll probably get to that later on, but there is definitely an element, <clears throat> an escapist element that music delivered for me um, and also an explorational nerdiness. I mean, you mentioned that, um, you mentioned the sort of that music was an escape. You mentioned the man who uh, sold the world, Bowie. Bowie for me, represented the other the outsider the alien and he for me as a teenager was a way out of my life that I sort of hated as a teenager that might be unfair to, to, to my mother at that time but it was a sort of way outside of my life I wanted to get the hell out and Bowie represented what my aspiration of, of the society that he seemed to be in and what he represented was where I wanted to go it's funny that you say the Beach Boys and the representation of what they are and where you are now, which is obviously LA, California, um, and they must have expressed that as well. But Brian Wilson was also a perfectionist. Could you understand the perfection in his music back then, or is that something that you would grasp later? I think perfection or, or the, the, yeah, perfection in music or in arts um, they happen, it's nothing you can understand, I think, because ultimately I think that music is one of the last magical resorts that we have in our lives. It's that thing, the inexplicable, it does something to you and you cannot know why. I mean, scientists have tried, you know, to <clears throat> dissemble, you know, what, what, makes a perfect song is there they're not getting anywhere you can't know because it is you know the sum of all things as you mentioned i mean you know you attached so many things to david bowie 
um, you know, I attach so many things to Prince and, and, and the Beach Boys. And therefore, it's not just the music, but if the music creates this magical space, you are willing to go there and it helps you to go there. Were you already Louis Oberlander in school? Uh, no, I was um, first Krasimir, then Christian, and then later on became Louis Oberlander, Louis Christian Oberlander. The reason I ask that is that I've uh, had about six therapists in my life. <laughs> and one of them I talked to, my real name is Stephen James. And my, you know, name that I had to I didn't have to choose that name, but because I wanted to join a union and there was already someone called uh, Stephen James, I had to change it. So uh, I chose Steve Blame. And my therapist said to me once that you adopt another personality with a change of name. How was that for you looking back? I mean, obviously, as a child, you wouldn't have understood that. But looking back, were you able to adopt another personality because you could then fit in? Yes, definitely. I mean, I remember that switch from the Bulgarian name to the German name to Christian was definitely a big step because all of a sudden it wasn't awkward. You know, I wasn't kind of like traceable as an as an clearly ethnic person. Um, <clears throat> that I do remember. I don't remember it having like a huge impact, though. I didn't feel like, oh, my God, I'm a new person. That was definitely not the, the case. I think the definition of, you know, becoming a new person to yourself happens with your changing your environment more than the name, I think. I mean, for me, at least it was. <clears throat> changing the environment, living in the UK or living in New York or living here abroad and on the West Coast, those are things that change my personality. Changes of culture, not so much the name. It was, it was a little bit of a thing, but um, not too much. So when did you actually start your first ever band? That was age 11 with my friend Stefan von Wagen. And um, we were very much into the reggae ska movement, the two-tone movement, you know, UB40 when they were actually really, really cool. I mean, it's, it's hard for a lot of people, you know, when they know Red Red Wine and stuff like that that the first album, you know, 11 kids meeting at the unemployment office and, you know, from all sorts of cultures and deciding to learn instruments and make music, socially charged music. I mean, socially politically charged music, you know, about Maggie Thatcher and whoever. Um, that stuff, we were so much into it. Madame, Madame Medusa, Tyler, amazing songs. Still to this day, I just listened to it the other day and I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. You know, anything from UB40, The Beat, um, Selector, um, you know, of course, Madness, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, but age 11 and the police were great. You know, they were also, oh my God, amazing stuff. So yeah, that was my first band. And we actually got our first show, uh, our first concert uh, in front of 1400 people in a place called Die Rampe in Großneumarkt in Hamburg. And, um, and it was, uh, well, it was a Christian, uh, what do you call this, like one day, Christian day of sorts. So Hamburg is flooded with tourists and that's why it was sold out, not because we played there. <laughs> 
but you know, we had we had an African American singer, and it was it was kind of like a novelty thing as well, because there were like three 11 to 13 year old kids on stage with one 18 year old, and we were playing hardcore reggae ska. I mean, for real. And so I wish, you know, I wish we had iPhones back then just for, for you know, witnessing that and re-watching that. So that was my first band. We were called The Producers. Uh, our first name for the band was called, we called ourselves The Gallant Gadfly. I don't know why. It's, man, bands and their names. It's ridiculous. I remember when, when U2 came out and uh, we were like, that's a stupid name because in Hamburg, there's a subway that's called U2. Eh, you know, you can't, couldn't connect the dots there. Um, what did you actually glean from being in that band that has stayed with you throughout your life? Is there anything, because the first band, the first opportunity to go on stage, playing with other people, that sort of, you know, idea. And, and I think there is also something that you do take from every experience. And I just wonder, although you were so young, what you took from that experience, which has been useful in other periods in your life. Well, I would, I would agree 100%. Um, I think a band is a very special uh, combination. It's like, it's, it's, got, it's, it's got the intimacy of a family. It's a surrogate family. Uh, yet the influences, they go outside of the realm of what a normal family usually delivers. So you have people from all walks of life, but they come together for a greater good and you have the fights and you have the agreements and you have the camaraderie, you have, you learn to compromise, uh, which is a very hard thing to do, especially when it comes to something like taste. You know, if, if you feel so strongly about it and you go, oh, I don't like this. But then you find ways by adding your input uh, musically, um, you know, to that and molding it into something else and it becomes something else and becomes yours. That's, I think, a very important element. I think the social element within a band um, is something that I've definitely taken with me throughout my whole life learning how to be with people you know it doesn't matter whether it's a band whether it's a work environment of sorts you know over here I started getting more into the entertainment industry into film and stuff it's all the same it's always the same mechanisms and to learn that at a very young age I mean pre-teen or teenager who gets the chance if you're not in music to learn that maybe people in sports <clears throat> that's the other option there I think but generally, if you just go to school and it's like, it's, it's a very one-sided scenario. The teacher, the pupil on the other end, and well, that's it. Yeah. What do you remember about the first contact with Dirk Darmstädter and Christoph Kaiser? Um, well, I, I, I signed a um, publishing contract as, as a songwriter with a... Um, company from Germany with a publishing company in Germany. And um, one of the guys, Michael Kama, who used to be um, the head of that, he um, suggested, hey, I have this American singer. He's an artist with us. I think you guys should meet, you know, he's trying to put together a band. You should, guys should meet. So we met 
I will be honest, I don't actually recall the very first meeting with Dirk and then later on Christoph, but what I do distinctively remember is our mission that we set ourselves on to craft the perfect pop song. So we were three people at that point. We felt we were a band <clears throat> and we would get, you know, drum machines and uh, four track recorders and just start programming and recording and overdubbing and crafting songs with, you know, intro, verse, bridge, middle, eight, chorus, and so on and so on. Um, I, I, I remember that he sounded weird to me, Dirk did, because he had a very strong American accent in German and he would get things wrong. And it was like, it felt a little bit like a put on, like, you know, like, like, but I realized, no, he's just that. He's just that. I think he had just come back from the States and yeah. But he is, is German, isn't he? He went to America yeah. for a few years. And that sort of adopted the accent. So when he came back, people thought he was uh, American. Um, what was different musically between uh, the Real McCoys, which was the first incarnation, as it were, of the Jeremy days, and uh, your own band, uh, the producers? What was different for you musically? Where did that? How had that progressed? Well, there was definitely much more of a. <clears throat> How do I word this? It's, it was more a, a very focused approach to the craft of songwriting with, uh, you know, my first band, the producers. I mean, we were kids and we just put three to five chords together. Oh, this is fun. Oh my God, this sounds like music. And that was the joy of it, right? And then just hanging out. With Dirk and Christoph, it was more like we would meet on weekends or, you know, end of the day and just sit down and be like, all right, we're gonna write a song now that is one of the best songs in the world. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and with that, there was a different approach somehow. Um, how do I, yeah, it was just more focused. Very I mean, there focused. Was, there was a point where the Real McCoys expanded as it were into the Jeremy days with um, right. Jorn, Christoph Heilbutt and Stefan Lager. So what was the reason for that? Why did you as a trio feel that you need to expand to have five people in, in the band? Well, I'll give you a visual. Um, as we were, while we were still three, just the three of us, we had a rehearsal room in Altona in Hamburg. And um, we had put the drum machine of the Yamaha RX-19 on the back on a little riser and we put spotlights on each of us <laughs> that were there including the drum machine <laughs> and uh it just didn't cut it man a drum machine and we we did like pop music and rock music so it the drum machine just didn't cut it so chris suffer chris um he he had an old buddy in munich stefan raga who was an excellent drummer he was kind of like a, a prodigy, a wunderkind of, of drumming and um, asked him whether he would come up. And I knew Jörn, uh, the guitarist, who was also a spectacular guitarist. 
And um, we just expanded. We always knew we wanted to be a real band. And three people, you know, I played keyboards, Chris up bass, Dirk sang and played guitar. So that was not a band. We could have played, a, we could have been a folk trio, but not a real band. So we always knew we needed to be more than just the three of us. And then, and then came actually a phase that was really interesting because that's what a lot of people don't understand. You know, when you have your first success, they're like, you know, oh, your overnight success, da, da, da. Well, you know that saying, give me 10 years and I'll give you overnight success. Because <clears throat> while, as we were writing songs, there was a time of roughly, I think one and a half to two years where we would just be an ice cold bunker rehearsal rooms in Hamburg practicing, rehearsing just playing the songs over and over again, figuring shit out, composing, all of that. That's a mighty long time. Two years of that, where you just do that, wow. I mean, looking back, you know, I mean, nowadays, or especially here in the US where, where songwriting is a craft, it's, it's a job. You have songwriting sessions, you meet for four hours and then you churn out four songs and that's it. And forming a band takes a week and, you know, your first gig should be in four weeks. It's, it's all so compressed and so, so different to how we approached it back then. The, um, I think what's interesting is that the area of uh, record companies at that time was um, very much um, about putting in a lot of money to bands that they really believed in. And there was a high investment into you as a band. How did that make you feel at that time? And what did you feel was coming? I think I'll be really honest with you. We had no idea that that's how the business worked. <laughs> You know, we thought when we signed the record deal and, and, you know, when we saw, you know, the cities plastered with our posters, um, we thought, yeah, duh, of course. They, they put them up there because we are so good. Um, and, you know, it was mistaken. Our, our attitude at that point was mistaken <clears throat> for arrogance when in reality it was pure naivete. It, it was just, we were like, well, we've been working so hard and we've been mastering actually the songwriting. So of course people will want to sell that. There was really, to, we, we did not understand the industry I think for the first five years and we didn't care about it. I mean, that's the other element. We were like, well, who cares? People, we had managers, Alexander von Oswald was our manager. We had a record company, Tim Renner was, you know, the. In our, so we didn't have any, we pulled, we stayed away from that stuff. So the, the, the fact that of course now, you know, yeah, if, if people are pushing artists, particular artists with a lot of money and I can only imagine the pressure that it can create for someone who's fully aware of it. Ultimately though, I think that artists tend to stay away from that thought. Yeah, okay, you can say that they stay away from it, but they, you went to London and you work with, you know, two of the biggest producer, producers at that time, Clive Langer and Alan with Stanley, who had worked with Elvis Costello, um, who had worked with Bowie and Jagger and Lloyd Cole. Um, so that must have given you a sort of feeling like, oh God, we're, you know, this is, 
this is big. This is something really big. You know, no, it's, I mean, of course, it was big. We were excited. It was more like a, a field trip of sorts. You know, we put all our stuff on the, whatever it was, Queen Mary, you know, in, in a truck and traveled over there and lived in, in Notting Hill. Um, but the thing is, when, once we were in the studio, of, of course, we knew who those people were because we chose them, right? We wanted to work with them but not so much for the status, but the people they had worked with and for the first time feeling that we are on a playing field that is ours. Not saying that we are as experienced or as good as Clive and Alan at that point, but you know, you want to rise to the occasion. You want to work with people who are exceptional. And that was a time because Germany at that point, mm, Musically, it was not our playing field. We had nothing to do in Germany. We came out of the Neue Deutsche Welle, which is new German wave, which was which ended up being a, a cacophon, cacophony, cacophony, um, cacophony, cacophony of of silly children's songs to fast, you know, new wave beats, and it was horrible. And modern talking was there, and so. There wasn't much in Germany that where we felt at home at, and neither were there any producers that we admired. Hence, we looked, you know, towards the US and the UK. So being with Clive and Alan at that point and having the first experiences with them in the studio, we're like, yeah, this is they work like like we used to craft our songs at home on the four track. So that was there was a huge relief because there was, of course, respect on one hand, you know, they've worked with everyone. I mean, we had Louis Jardim on our first album. He played the bass on Grace Jones' Slave to the Rhythm. And he played congas on our album. Um, you know, he was sitting there with his fat cigar. And, and, and when he said that, that he played the bass on Slave to the Rhythm, we were just floored. I mean, being part of pop history, music history in any way, shape or form is one of the most inspiring things as a musician, I think, apart from writing songs or performing. I think that's your collective, the collective of pop music, everything. That's why I don't say I hate this or I hate this or this, this type of music. It's more like, well, we're all pursuing the same things just with, with different means and different tools and different approaches. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. What was really interesting then was that the first single that you released was sort of, wasn't really a success, but the second single which came out the year of the album um, brand New Toy, was uh, a very big success. It was played on MTV Europe. Um, you did feel like an international band. And as you said, you didn't feel like uh, a band that you could identify instantly, oh, they come from Germany. You just felt like they were you were international in every right. way. What, at that point, I presume that the relationships in the band were working well, you were really on a high and you all must have felt this is really going somewhere. Can you describe to me how that feeling was at that period? Yeah. Um, it was, you know, the thing 
the moment we re realized this is going well had much less to do with the chart entry and the success of Brand New Toy because we almost missed that one because we were, <clears throat> while that happened in Germany, we were so focused on the UK, we started living there. Uh, we didn't really get the whole success part in Germany, but what we felt was like, so now we can do this. We're planning the second album. It's also gonna be with Clive and Alan again as producers. Um, that was the moment when we were like, we can do this forever and ever and ever. We're gonna make 30 albums. And, <clears throat> you know, that was a, a total high when you get to actually do what you want to do. Um, the success in regards to, you know, chart entry and stuff like that, that, that was, a we had that, we were in Hafenklang Studios in Germany, which was our studio that we rented at that point. And we got the news, you're on number, position number 11 in the German single charts. And, you know, we had champagne there and we drank some champagne. And then like an hour after that, it was like, all right, uh, let's go back in the room and continue rehearsing. I mean, there wasn't, there was not, chart entries, you know, I don't know what they mean. I think they mean more to the people in the industry because it gives them material that they can work with. You know, you can name drop stuff. You can say, well, they're in the charts. They're in position number 10, this, this, this. To a musician, it basically just gives you a little bit of a, uh, this little bit of like, all right, okay, now I don't have to have any awkward meetings with the A&R where they go, why don't you do more music like John Bon Jovi or something like that, you know? But there must have been a point where also that you may have felt, okay, money's going to come in and this is going to, little, I'll be in safer territory. Do you know what I mean? I won't have to think about how am I going to pay the rent or how am I going to do this? It's life is going to get a lot easier. How, I, how I, did that happen or how was it? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I never had any money concerns as a 22-year-old. Uh, life was cheap at that point. I don't know how any of us did it, but if you think back about your life, maybe when you're 20, 22, you don't really worry too much about money. Yes, you kind of have to, but you always scrape by somehow. So I don't know. We never thought about the money aspect of things. We would get our advances from the record company and the publishing companies, and then we would live on that. Our manager took care of 
you know, oh yeah, you you five guys are gonna stay in that house in Islington now for the next year and a half. And we're like, all right, cool, awesome, awesome house, old Victorian thing, nothing fancy, nothing. You know, we didn't have fancy stuff. We were never into fancy stuff, be it cars or or drugs or any of that shit. Like, we were a very humble, non rock and roll band, so to speak. <clears throat> highly boring to some extent even our tour manager michael dever he probably at that point he wanted to spoil us and and make us like real rock band he was he gave up after a month or so <laughs> so how was that experience in london and how do you think that sort of also added to a change in your perspective because you you know you you've lived in so many places and you've moved around so much. I just wondered if what, what influence London gave you. London, London in 88, 89, 90 was spectacular. I will say that I think that was definitely a life-changing experience for me and the lads as well, or the guys, as I, I should say over here. Um, but it was, number one, you're in the center of pop music, you know, the, 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 I mean, whatever was happening was happening in London and the club scene uh, started to come out again out of a, a slumber of sorts and went into the, the house and dance scene. So it was the birth of, it was the second summer of love. Um, so Stone Roses, you know, the whole Cumbrian whatever concoction plus house music, you know, Acid House started becoming a big thing. Loops, incorporating loops, drum loops into rock music. Um, the WAG Club in Soho was a center, you know, that we would hang out with. I think one of the co-owners, or he was one of the co-owners, Chris Sullivan, he directed the video to Are You Inventive? Um, you know, and he was this, this quirky personality and, and you know, we were we were Parnini Cherry, you know, East Code Studios, all of those, Matt Johnson, all of that became part of our life all of a sudden, you know, and we thought that is spectacular. So that is something that is was so much more exciting than here's another 20 grand that you guys can live off for the next two months, you know, that, completely un uncorrelated, like being in London and having that experience and access to the music and the vibe and pop culture was spectacular. And, you know, just, I don't know, the whole thing, the style council-ish, like you hang out at, you know, a cafe, you get a haircut afterwards. And it's, it's, it was just a, 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 a time that I get very nostalgic about. It was definitely a once in a lifetime kind of thing, I would say. You mentioned Chris Sullivan. Of course, he had that brilliant band, Blue Rondo a la Turk, which is one of one of uh, my favourite records. <laughs> I just want to say that. The, uh, um, this success of the band allowed the band to continue for quite a few years and over, um, I think it was five albums. They were progressively or, you know, towards the end, less successful, let's say. How did then the relationships between the band members change and were you still as enthusiastic at the end of that period as you were at the beginning well that's a clear no <laughs> i mean 
let, let's say the relationship deteriorated because we were five very strong musical minds. And that was a great concoction for the first album and the second album. Uh, under the guidance of Clive and Allen and also the novelty of it and our ways of um, still coming from the same background and going into the similar direction that worked for the first two albums. Album three, four, five became very frazzled. I mean, we had so many different inputs. It started going from, all right, we're here in the center and this is what we can all agree on to well, I'm over here. I want to do like I was, for example, into dance music. I was I, I got hooked on house and and like I was all about electronica and house. And then you had someone like Dirk or Yearn who were all about, you know, acoustic music on the far end. So that created so much tension. Also, another thing, as you start forming your personality in your early 20s, mid 20s, it became about ego something that was not really there in the first on the first two albums but from there on it became like whose songs are we gonna put on this album so we had three main songwriters Dirk, Christoph, and me and Jörn sometimes would write a song and Steve also sometimes would write a song but the three songwriters of us it became very much of a of a struggle and it, the the worst moments were like when we were in a rehearsal room and writing a new song uh, or presenting a new song and then someone would say, oh, this just sounds like modern talking. And with that, that song was dead. So you couldn't work. And, and though there were very harsh moments amongst ourselves um, during production times. The tours, the things that kept us alive spiritually on a mental space were the tours because touring and the support of the fans and the joy that the fans uh, experienced during our shows and the joy that we had. We, I think one of the biggest compliment I ever heard a journalist say at some point to us in person was, you guys, your shows remind me of a modern day Pink Floyd extravaganza. And at that point, I didn't quite know what he meant, but then I understood it was a very, celebratory freeform exploration of a live concert. It wasn't like, all right, here are our 12 songs. We're gonna play them. We jammed, I mean, not like stupid blues jam or something like that. We jammed our songs. We segued a song like Clouds of Maine, one of our albums into uh, Silly Love Songs by The Wigs. And it was on prom too like out of nowhere. And so <clears throat> I think our live performances were the things that kept us sane and uh, from jumping each other's throats, which would happen in the studio. Um, but when the band fell apart, there must have been, um, I mean, okay, a band and having, you know, being with people so closely is a relationship and any relationship when it breaks up is difficult for any of the parties within the relationship to deal with. How was it after the band split? How was that period for you? Because I imagine it was quite a dark period as well for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me think. I mean, there was definitely, well, first you have to remember that <clears throat> 
I became a father in 1989 to my daughter, Paula, right? So age 22, 23, I was a father. I became a father. I turned into a little family with my son, Ruben, two years later, um, three years later. And each of and every one of us, you know, Dirk became a father, Jörn became a father. So we, we became individuals outside of the band. So by the time, by 1995, 96, um, we had to deal with real life. <laughs> so the hardship of the breakup, um, which wasn't actually, we never said, let's call, let's call it quits. We just said, hey guys, let's just take a break. That was, that was kind of what we went. So, so under that light, it seemed like, oh, thank God. Oh man, we so deserve a break. Now we can take care of real life. We can take care of our personal <clears throat> preferences musically. So everyone went into the type of music they wanted to do, the type of stuff they wanted to produce or work with others, collaborations, and so on and so on. Um, it was not dark. Um, maybe subconsciously, I don't know. I didn't do that therapy session, but maybe there was a disappointment in the guys, you know, that, that we couldn't, we've pulled through almost 10 years through all sorts of, you know, challenging scenarios. And then that last bit, <clears throat> when we could have continued, we couldn't pull through anymore. Maybe I mean, there was a disappointment. I know you kept writing and everything, but the, the being in a band and doing what you were doing is a creative output. And when you're having that creative output and that output then is essentially taken away or the, the main part of that output, then, and I know that you, you had a family and I understand that part of it as well, because that's going to keep you busy and it's something that you love and that you want to be around and you want to see your kids grow up. But on the other side, there is this, I would assume, and I've had this in a period of my life, this emptiness where you're feeling I need something to fulfill me uh within creatively as well so Ooh. was that a period where you were able to think and start developing ideas uh for your future because you made a a big change in your life yet yet again it took a while but there was a another big change in your life well you know there was definitely i think again the relief of not fighting over elements in creativity, uh, I think prevailed and was the dominant force after the breakup. So the fact that I knew if ever I were to sit at the guitar or, or at the piano, that I wouldn't have to fight with anyone about what I'm doing, I think that was a relief. And so my continuation was, you know, becoming a music producer and working with other people was filled by just a new approach. Oh, different people, we don't argue, we come to good results. So it was not that dark or that frustrating. And creativity at that point was also something that I had already learned <clears throat> from doing that I'd never had to worry about. It wasn't something like I knew, I might have a writer's block at some point, but I just have to let, to sit through it and eventually it'll start bubbling up again and I will be able to write. So <clears throat> it, wasn't, 
it wasn't that bad, to be honest. And I think everyone in the band felt the same way. I think there was a bigger, I think the relief was almost bigger than the pain. I can't speak for everyone, but um, you know, everyone did actually really well continuing afterwards. So when did the former communist boy <laughs> decide to go to the center of the capitalist world? <laughs> I mean, I love America and that, that's it. It's obviously meant as a joke, but you know. <laughs> I, I get it. Um, it oh God, it was, it was a strange thing because it was not a conscious decision at first. I basically like, so 10 years after the band split up, that was the time when I was, I felt Hamburg as a city had been sucked dry with sucked dry with, with all the creatives fleeing to Berlin. So Hamburg became a culturally very void city. Um, and I had just moved to Berlin in 2004, <clears throat> trying to sort of see what Berlin is like. And, um, and I was like, oh God, it's the same shit show, just, you know, slightly different paint, but it's very similar. It's still Hamburg, still Germany. Uh, and I said, I need a vacation. I need to get out for a while. So I went to Los Angeles for two weeks, three weeks actually. And I arrived here because I'd never been to Los Angeles. I mean, that's the thing. So, you know, I've, I've lived in quite a few places, but I have not been to Los Angeles. So I went here and it was just interesting because after three weeks, I realized I haven't seen shit over here. And three, three weeks in Los Angeles is nothing. And um, so I extended and I stayed here for three months. Well, in those three months, mm, I just fell in love with the city and its people. I loved, you know, the friendliness. I mean, all the things that I'm gonna say now sound cliche, the friendliness of it, the vastness of the space, uh, the, the weather. Um, I met amazing people. Um, I met Herb Alpert during that time. Herb Alpert became, you know, a, a dear friend of mine and, you know, someone I look up to substantially. Um, so, I don't know, the magic just started to unfold because I wanted to see the magic. Um, it's so funny looking back now, you know, 17 years later, where I'm like, oh my God, you are really a, a creator of your own space, which harks back to the escapism as a little boy growing up. Uh, I seem to really always create my own spaces. If something doesn't work, something doesn't work for me, I, I create or create a new space. So back also to, I guess I just wasn't made for these times. I still, to this day, don't really know where I want to be. Los Angeles is not an easy city. I know you said, you know, the way you've described it and everything, it was, it's almost landing somewhere which, you know, is... Uh, you love the open spaces of Los Angeles and, and you made friends very quickly and all this sort of stuff. But Los Angeles can be a place where people get lost and they go there. A lot of people go there. I don't know what your original vision of going there was. It was a holiday, I know, so it's different. But a lot of people go there because they dream of this golden career and they're going to be discovered and they're going to make it then they yeah. a lot of the, those people get lost and they end up 
being killed in a way creatively uh, and emotionally by that city. Um, oh, so how, how have you sort of circumvented all that? Uh, I think, you know, you're absolutely right, by the way, in that observation. I can say that now. Um, I think my advantage was that I did not come here with any plan or any golden dream of sorts. There was really none. I mean, friends always ask me, didn't you want, because I couldn't foresee what I was going to do over here. I literally just wanted to live here. That's it, live, not, not, not work or become something or someone. I just wanted to live here. I wanted to take in the warm climate. And that's pretty much it. And nice and open, friendly people. That's all I wanted. The fact that I then transitioned into the different careers that I did, I mean, becoming an actor was the furthest away from, from what I could have ever imagined of becoming. But I just stumbled into it. I really stumbled into acting, from that into photography, into DJing. Same thing, DJing. I mean, I, 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 even though I love dance music, but I never wanted to DJ, you know? So, but any of that, it really just unraveled. It, it, it shaped itself out. It went, it came by me going, why don't I try this? And I tried it and I did it and I was good at it and it was fun. That's all that mattered to me. That other element that you mentioned, people coming here and getting sucked dry. I mean, LA, from my experience, is one of the loneliest cities in the world. And prior to that, I thought London can be that at times. <laughs> but um, no, LA is a real challenge because it doesn't have the social cultural meeting places of sorts. They don't exist. They just don't exist. Um, and, and therefore people get very lonely here. And the only thing where you can actually socialize is in, in business environments. And business environment socializing is, can basically be broken down to, to pitching. Everyone pitches the other person what they're doing, what they're onto, hoping for opportunities because that's what LA used to be. You know, uh, LA is also, of course, majorly transitioning from, from an entertainment city and has transitioned into a fintech town, finance technology. So uh, it, it's changing. I can't really say for the better or the worse. I don't know. It, it is just changing like, like many cities do. But it's, I mean, this is a fast-paced fast change over here. I mean, I've been to LA quite a few times and I remember one time when my career was dead and uh, at a very low ebb and I went to visit a friend in LA and we went to these sort of two hour parties that they have in the evening. You get, a, you get an in time and an out time, <laughs> which I'd never heard of before. So you turn up at seven, but you got to leave by nine because it's yeah. only about who you are. And I remember being at this party and it started off people asking you, what do you do? And I said, actually, I'm unemployed at the moment. You know, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't actually unemployed, but I just said, I'm unemployed at the moment. I emptied the room, you know, you empty the room immediately. So this friend of mine who lives there said, no, 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 don't, don't say that. Say that you're a presenter on MTV and that had long ended. So the next thing was like, oh, I'm a presenter on MTV. The room <laughs> filled up, you know, it was the most bizarre experience ever because your status is only related to what you can give the person you are talking to. And that I found 
very tough to deal with because it, it sort of lacked humanity. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's very difficult to say something to that. I would absolutely agree in that observation. And I learned it the hard way myself, emptying the room by just, you know, being honest and saying, I've got nothing going on right now. Oh, okay, bye. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't want to talk to you. Why would I talk to you? You've got nothing going on. Of course, it's it, it robs you of your humanity because, you know, now as we talk and you go, oh, I wanted to talk to you because you have such an interesting life. No one gives a fuck about your interesting life if it's not written in a script, if it's not, you know, based on a true story. <laughs> but but um, no, but I, I, I watched all of this and what I've come to realize is it's the confusion that Europeans feel over here, especially in LA, thinking that parties are social gatherings. They are not. They're extended pitching places. So in that regard, you have to be very aware of those two hours. That's like your pitch time. This is the time when you can fast forward and jump all the hoops that in Europe, you can't even jump. You can't, you can't go from here to here at a party in Europe, but over here you can. You meet the right person or you offer the right part that someone else needs, boom. So it's just a very efficient uh, business setting masked as a social hanging out. I mean, you mentioned DJing, you mentioned photography and you mentioned um, acting. Now, music, I can see in acting because there's a rhythm to words. There's a rhythm to how you uh, bring something across on film. Um, DJing, obviously, I don't need to explain that one in any sense. <laughs> photography, where is the music in photography? Is, is there some relation to how you perceive photography in musical terms? Well, you know, I started my photography based on empowering women, actually. So I started, I think, in around 2012. That was kind of like pre the Instagram and social media craze, but I could already get a sense of <clears throat> what was going to come. And so my photography is very simple, uh, non-frills, no big makeup styling, da, da, da. but relatability, relatability to music comes in, you know, the term composition. You compose a frame. I didn't make elaborate shoots with props or anything like that. All I did was find the person's angles and, and moments that look good. I was on a mission to make a person look good, especially women, without the trickery, merely by creating a mood that was pleasant and by finding the right angles. Because photography is a very selective <clears throat> craft. And that's, that's where you can actually re relate it to music. I can, you can give me a guitar and I can play horrible stuff on that guitar or you give me a guitar and I play beautiful stuff on it. And it's the same with photography. You can take a shit picture of the most beautiful person in the world, or you take a spectacular picture. 
So the choice matters. And that's why I truly enjoyed doing photography. It had also a similar element of meditation. You go into a zone and from there you start expanding and let whatever comes through you speak. So that would mean with my subjects, I would sometimes look through the lens and see that woman as a 10 year old, as a 30 year old, I would see her in the future as a 50 and 70 year old. And that's basically what my, my brain gave me, you know, what, 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 sort, of, what sort of came through me. And it, it harks back to seeing my grandmother, my mother, you know, all of those people, my daughter, everyone coming into that, culminating in that person that I am shooting. Um, so I think selective approaches in general is a, a red thread in creative processes, especially in the overwhelm that we have. I mean, you must know that as a writer and, you know, like, where do you start? What do you focus on? You could, we could, I mean, even this conversation, I mean, we're, I still feel we're just touching the, the surface of any of those sub reddits. <laughs> you know, that we can divulge in. So, yeah. You talked earlier about when you moved to Berlin in 2004, but in 2003, you played with the guys in Rettet den FC St. Pauli, which was uh, yeah, a, be yeah. a benefit for FC St. Pauli. When you were in LA and all that time, had you had any contact with the guys or had you basically forgotten them as it were? I don't mean, you know, in a negative sense, but in a sense they were in your past. I mean, we really had little to no contact. Um, I, I, I don't recall if I ever had a conversation with Jörn or something, maybe, you know, except for that one show, the, the concert there in 2003, that was a one-off and, but no, there was no contact. And there was also no, no need or want to, to connect. I mean, my life since I moved over here has been wonderfully busy and actually non-music related. I stopped making music in 2005 consciously. That was a conscious decision. Um, I didn't miss the guys and of course, once we start getting together again, you realize, oh my God, there's so much history. There's so much of a connection and so much, you know, love, actual love amongst us. We care for each other and about but, each other. But where did the contact come from? Who, who connected you again? And what was your initial feeling of this idea to actually play together again live? It was, it was very banal almost. I mean, it was like, it was a former booker, a booking agency that used to book our shows. They said, hey guys, um, hey, so here's a crazy idea. We're getting some calls from people asking about the 30 year anniversary of your album. And you know, uh, don't you just wanna do a reunion show or something or not a reunion, just, a, just an anniversary show. And Dirk, you know, forwarded that email to all of us and for some inexplicable reason because we've been inquired by Tim Renner for example prior previously 
whether we would do you know a show and we were like nah no why why would it be but all of a sudden i think this 30 year thing the anniversary um and it caught us kind of like in a good space and we decided to just be like yeah we can do that we can do just one show why shouldn't we it could be fun and and yeah hence we we did that and of course there's also the fear i will be honest i remember my first thought was oh man i don't want to be like one of those revival bands you know you you go you you play a show and then it used to be you know a thousand people that would come to your show and all of a sudden it's 50 people and it's a very sad moment it would be it could be a very sad moment of course that also is in there you know where you're like oh i don't want to go through that but we were just we're just let's just do it what the fuck let's see what happens and you know it turned out amazing it was a sold out show at the docks in hamburg and the most beautiful thing about that evening apart from seeing everyone and being emotional and happy and joyous was the fact that there was no purpose to the show apart from celebrating there was no promoting i remember when we as a band when every show that we played always had the 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 tenor of we need to show the world that we are the best we need to convince the people the last journalist who might write for enemy he needs to know that we are the shit so there was none of that during that show it was pure bliss from the moment walking on stage opening chords to the last moment leaving it and just being like that was the best show of our lives just for that what's brilliant about this story it has then on top you know the cherry on top is this fairy tale ending with beauty and broken with a with an album that goes into the german charts and you know so many years after your first success and completely unexpected uh for all the members of the band i'm i'm sure i can't imagine anyone would ever sort of expect that where does that put you in your life now because you you know it's almost like you develop this other life you have this life in la that you really love you you have all these facets to your life that you enjoy and then suddenly the thing that you originally started out to do has come true again so where does yeah. that put you in your life yeah that's that's a funny one man that's a funny one i would say uh it's hard to place because on one hand it is some sort of a past life like it's it's you know 20 years ago that's that's kind of where where all of that sits so revisiting this and man we were so surprised we've never gotten this much and such good press like all of our albums were hated that's that's what we felt like our, there was a lot of critique you know about us being the way we were and the music and eh, it's just mainstream blah 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 whatever and 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 now we've had um, amazing press and wonderful you know statements from from writers and journalists etc 
So it's kind of like strange almost to be like, wait, what? Is this the power of nostalgia? Or in our own uh, analysis, we've become much more chill. So therefore, so hence the, the, the result, the music becomes, have, has become more homogenous again. You know, we became very frazzled in the course of the creation of our albums over time. And, and now we're sort of like very, it's more, very homogenous. It's, it's a round, well-rounded, good album, you know? So it puts me in a strange place for several reasons. One, of course, geographically, uh, I have to, I've, I've been looking at three different flights this year, you know, three different long trips to Germany for all the stuff that we need to do. We will be playing, oh my God, can I say that already? I don't even know what I can say that. A famous German institution on TV, which is kind of like the knighting, the knighting of our band, which is amazing. Um, we're gonna play that. The police played that as well in 1977. So <laughs> it's nice how it loops back in my mind to you know watching a band that I loved on that TV thing and then performing it ourselves this fall. I think it's wonderful. This full circle idea is a very beautiful idea. What's interesting yeah. to me is how that success could play into your career uh, as an actor, whether that success could translate into L.A., um, further success in L.A. and bigger success in terms of acting in L.A. Or does L.A. care? You know, so... A, I am not an actor. I just happen to enjoy filming and acting. I, I love it. It's a great exercise. It's, it's, it's relaxing to me. I enjoy the camaraderie on, the, on a whole crew, on a whole team, et cetera, et cetera. I love good visionary directors and writers. That shit turns me on like nothing else. But I love the reduced being as an actor that you get to be. It's not as all-consuming as being a musician, to be honest. Um, and I'm not onto an acting career. Like that, that is the thing. Like, I mean, I appreciate what you say, you know, like maybe it will feed into that, but I am I have removed myself from career approaches of sorts. So currently, for example, the, the main thing I'm doing is I'm working in finance and DeFi, so crypto. That's, that's where my head is now these days. The creative outlet is the cherry on top of everything, whatever it is. If I get asked to DJ, if I get asked to participate in a film or in something, that's just, oh my God, thank you universe, amazing. Um, I think, I'm truly not made for these times because career thinking was never my thing and continues to not be my thing. So if the Jeremy days continue to have the success that we currently have or not, I don't really care for. Don't get me wrong, this is not being ungrateful. It's more like how amazing to have done what we have done, not only back in the 80s and 90s, 
but also with this new album, bringing all these fans among themselves together again, revisiting their youth and having a great time for ourselves. That already is enough. I am actually in the light of that rather humble. Uh, what matters to me these days is a little bit continuing to find a sense of purpose. That's what I find is one of the biggest challenges in aging. I'm, I'm turning 56 this year, right? And there has been a distinct difference to me 10 years ago and now where I realize I have to be able to wake up every morning and find a purpose to get up. And that doesn't matter whether I'm in a depressive phase or whether I'm in a positive phase. I have to find the sense of purpose. And I think that is one of the challenges of aging and music defeats that. Music as a listener and a creator defeats aging because it gives you something highly satisfying to get your head into. Well, I will finally say that that sense of purpose as a 63-year-old, <laughs> I have definitely found my sense of purpose, which is as a writer, because it fulfills me totally to write, wow. whether it will be successful or not. And that is a wonderful thing. So don't worry about aging. <laughs> you are not going to age badly in any case, because you've always been a very good looking man. And Lewis, thank you for your uh, those insights into your own life and uh, really telling us this uh, wonderful journey and um, this fairy tale end, which isn't the end. So uh -huh. I wish you well in the future. And thanks again. Thank you so much, Steve. What a lovely interview. Thank you so much. You're amazing. You're an amazing person. Thank you. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.